Hello, welcome to this week's Midweek Live Like Jesus podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I pray that the things that we say today will be beneficial and encouraging during these troubling times. The last, the very last, so richly, brightly, dazzlingly yellow. Perhaps if the sun's tears would sing against the white stone. Such, such a yellow is carried lightly way up high. It went away, I'm sure, because I'm sure it wished to. Kiss the world goodbye. For seven weeks I've lived here, pinned up inside this ghetto. But I have found my people here. The dandelions call to me, and the white chestnuts in the court. Only I never saw another butterfly. That butterfly was the last one. Butterflies don't live here in the ghetto. This poem was written by Pavel Friedman on June the 4th in 1942. A young Jewish who was quarantined in Auschwitz during the pain and suffering of World War II. That's what I want to talk about today. Pain and suffering are the second oldest problems in the world. They entered in on the hills and as a result of sin. When Eve succumbed to Satan's temptation and chose to disobey God, pain and suffering entered and has worsened since the garden. In fact, most Bible scholars believe the oldest book in the Bible is Job. It is clearly written to portray how one man who evidently did not deserve the pain and suffering he endured, not only endured, but overcame. Pain and suffering has indeed been around a very long time. Not only is pain and suffering the second oldest problem in the world, it is the second most widespread problem in the world. This terrible duo falls to second place again because the scripture concludes that all nature is under the curse of sin. Romans chapter 8, verse 22, the Apostle Paul writes, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains until, together until now. In Romans chapter 3, verse 28, verse 23, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, We know that we are of God, John says, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Pain and suffering can cause such discouragement that one will lose hope and enter into such despair that they will give up on life. I have seen easygoing personalities change into bitter, snarling, raging, angry people because of pain. Oscar Wilde is reported to have said at one point, There is enough misery on every street in London to disprove God. This brings us to a major point in our lesson, and the major question that people of faith must answer. We cannot be cavalier about this question. We must answer it. The question, if God is God, and He is good, then why is there such pain and suffering and evil? C.S. Lewis put this into a trilemma 
that we'll talk about in a, at a later time. I mean, if there is a God with the love and power and knowledge that the Bible claims that he has, why does he allow, allow me, us, to hurt? Why doesn't he stop it? Why doesn't he stop abuse? Why doesn't he stop the meanness? Meanness is a very nice word for some very ugly things. It must be that there is no God, Oscar Wilde concluded, or he really isn't all he's cracked up to be. You tell me that he's perfectly loving, pure, and good, and wise? How can he know about all these problems and not do anything about him? I mean, really, if God can, why doesn't he? Well, enough about what atheists and agnostics and skeptics say. What does the Bible say? The Bible is God's book. The Bible says that God is good. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 17, So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. In John chapter 3, verse 16, we see that God is love. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We see that God is all-powerful. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, Jesus Christ says, With men this is impossible, with God all things are possible. We see, too, from Scripture that God is all-knowing. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 through 31, Jesus reasons thusly. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. What a comforting idea that is. Because of these facts about God, some people begin to blaspheme. They accuse God of evil. They say that he's mean, that he's weak, that he's unloving. A predominant atheist is on record as saying the problem of suffering is, crucial, is of crucial importance because it shows that the God of popular theism does not exist. Another one said there's only one argument offered as a positive reason for believing in God, the God does not exist, that his existence is incompatible with the imperfections in the world. God is said to be perfectly powerful, knowing, and good. But there is evil in the world. Hence, if God is omniscient and good, he is not omnipotent. Or if he is omnipotent and good, the evil must exist because he doesn't know it. If he is not omniscient, then he is both omnipotent and omniscient. He is not good. Thus, because of the evil, the traditional God cannot have all three attributes. That's an atheistic point of view. The major problem with this logic is that it's from the human side. It leaves what God says, what God sees out completely. It focuses completely on the evil in the world. And as human beings, we have a tendency to do that, don't we? We tend to see the bad, the wrong, the, the uh, problems, not the good, not the things that are going right, not the beauty, not the righteousness, happiness, the order. If evil and wrong disproves God, then using that same logic, good and right proves him. Further, there's a problem of eternal inequities. Pain and suffering with no hope ever? No judgment to come to give justice a voice? What kind of reality is that? 
The question still remains, though, why do I suffer? This makes it more personal, doesn't it? Some men have answered, you suffer because you deserve it. This is called Deuteronomic theology. But simply put, it means that all suffering comes directly as a result of and is proportionate to the sins that one has committed. This means that God is not at fault. God is innocent. Now, people in the Bible have believed this, and people in the Lord's church still believe it today, even if they don't know what to call it. In Deuteronomy 28, we'll look at a couple of passages. Verses 1 and 2, It shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe fully all His commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Fifteen specific blessings follow in the next few verses. Skip down to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15 this time. And it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you this day, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. There were many more curses than blessings. Take your time and go and read Deuteronomy chapter 28. Rabbi Harold Kushner, in his rather excellent book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, relates this story. I was a young rabbi, he says, just starting out in my profession when I was called to try to help a family through an unexpected and almost unbearable tragedy. This middle-aged couple had one daughter, a bright 19-year-old girl who was in her freshman year at college. One morning at breakfast, they received a phone call from the university infirmary. We have some bad news for you. Your daughter collapsed while walking to class this morning. It seems a blood vessel burst in her brain. She died before we could do anything for her. We're terribly sorry. The stunned parents asked a neighbor to come help them decide what steps to take next. The neighbor notified the synagogue, and I, as the rabbi, went over to see them that same day. I entered their home feeling very inadequate, not knowing any words to say to ease their pain. I anticipated anger, shock, grief, but I didn't hear, expect to hear the first words they said to me. You know, Rabbi, we didn't fast last Yom Kippur. This is a perfect illustration of the doctrine of retribution that Deuteronomic theology. In reality, if we're honest with ourselves, we can all find ways that every evil that has befallen us, we have deserved. Or can we? Too often we hear about retribution and then hear about some tragedy and some innocent and are left with vacant questions that haunt us. Why? Why? In Acts chapter 28, the Apostle Paul encountered a group of people who believed this doctrine. When he was a prisoner in Rome and on his way to stand before Caesar, the ship wrecked. And he and the other passengers and the crew made it to shore, but they lost all the cargo. The Apostle, believing that a man who did not work should not eat, helped build the fire that they warmed and dried themselves by. As he was throwing sticks into the fire, a snake attached itself to his hand and people who were native to the island, believed that he had been judged because of the evil that he had done. 
They thought that though he had escaped the sea, fate has finally caught up with him. He'll get what he deserves after all. Imagine their surprise when he shook the beast off into the fire and continued as if nothing had happened. That's why they wanted to worship Paul. In Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, we find that there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or what about those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? You think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Such reasoning, this retributive uh, doctrine, is unsound. Job suffered, even though he was a righteous man and hated evil. Paul was neither evil nor a god. The Galileans, while maybe sinners, were slain by Pilate because of Pilate's evilness, not theirs. The final judgment against the argument of retribution is Jesus Christ. No sin. No wrong. Not guilty, not once. But he suffered immense agony. And while the idea of all suffering comes from one's own sins isn't true, it doesn't mean that we cannot bring, bring about our own suffering. In fact, we often do bring about our own pain. Having said that, I want to discuss briefly the root cause of suffering. Solomon, often referred to as the wisest man in the world, or sometimes the richest, at, in his life he was undoubtedly both, says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked over all the works that my hands had done on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Vanity and grasping for wind. Sin is so horrible because of the consequences that follow. God has, in his divine foreknowledge and wisdom, legislated things sinful that are harmful. Those things which cause us harm and ruin, he has prohibited. Even though the consequences of sin may be slow in coming, we can be sure they will come. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. But the exact opposite is true for righteousness. When we make sacrifices and practice self-control and decide to do right, the pleasure comes later. Therefore, choosing sin is abnormal. It's not healthy choices that we make when we choose sin. We are choosing to hurt ourselves. There are many examples of men and women who brought untold pain and suffering on themselves because of their choices. We know this because the Bible says it. But keep in mind, that is the only reason that we know it. Many times, even in the scripture, we're not sure why a person or a group of people are suffering like they are, except that sin is the ultimate reason somewhere, somehow, 
directly or indirectly. Let's look at Cain very briefly. Cain sinned in worship. Now understand, it was in worship that Cain sinned. God has never accepted the type of worship that indicates and teaches anything goes. While that type of philosophy is accepted today by the world, it is not accepted by God. We must remember that God is the one who is to be pleased. God is holy and demands us to be holy, demands holy worship from holy people. Sincerity is essential. This is true. Faith is essential that refuses to change God's order. That's all part of worship. Scriptures do not reveal Cain's reasoning process. Why he chose to bring to God the fruit of the ground rather than the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof, we, don't, we will never know. Today's logic is, it's not what you do, but the sincerity of your heart that counts. That's a sentiment that is never found in Scripture. Another philosophy says, I like this way better. It's more appealing to me. That philosophy also is not found in Scripture. Regardless, Cain sinned in his worship because he offered the wrong thing to God. It's almost impossible to commit just one sin. When God accepted Abel's sacrifice, Cain became jealous. Jealousy led to murder. He murdered his own brother. This is typical of sin. Cain's suffering grew and grew and multiplied. Because sin must be punished, he was exiled in a manner of speaking. He suffered because of his sin. There's a very little known story of a very little known man, that of Haman the Agagite. In the thrilling story of Esther, we see the story of God's providence in watching over his people. Haman was the villain of the story, and the king entrusted the legislation of the country to this Haman. This man, Haman, while he's little known, his ego was pretty huge. He had enough influence to have a law passed that whenever he was on the street, everyone would bow down to him. Everybody obeyed that law, but one man, Mordecai. Mordecai the Jew. He refused to bow down to any man, including Haman. Mordecai was a Jew. And this caused Haman to hate all Jews. This teaches us that hate, based on racial prejudice, is never a good idea. But God had provided for Esther to become the queen. Esther was a Jew. Haman had this law passed that all Jews were going to be put to death because of Mordecai's faithfulness to God. During the ensuing time, Mordecai and Esther planned a strategy to inform the king. That night, the night before the king had difficulty sleeping, so he had the chronicles of his kingdom read to him to help him sleep. This reading reminded him of an attempted assassination plot that had been discovered and reported by Mordecai two years before. The story ends with Haman's plot to eradicate a whole people being discovered, and Haman was the one ultimately hung on his own gallows. Do you see? Haman suffered. 
He suffered wounded pride and wounded ego because his heart was not in the right place. He suffered eventually death because he fought against God. These are examples for us to learn that we can, in fact, we can bring our own pain and suffering. This is not true for every type of pain and suffering, but it is for some. In examining our own suffering, our own pain, let's consider if we are to blame. And let's be honest. Because as likely as it is that we are, it's just as likely that we are not. I want you to look too that, consider too that in our society, the concept of pain and suffering is out of focus. You see, we've looked at just two examples from the Bible that demonstrate that sometimes suffering is brought on by our own selves. Three categories of human suffering that are needful for us to consider right here. So considering what we've just seen, some examples of times when people bring it on themselves, we're forced to recognize that we can do this to ourselves even today. We should not, as Christians, be discouraged by our failures. Please recall in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, John writes, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's writing that to Christians, to the church. But when we falter, we have consequences to pay, just like Cain, just like Haman. Maybe not to their extent and thank God for his grace, but unless repentance is made, we will pay eternal consequences. We need to remember that just because God forgives the guilt of our sins, that doesn't necessarily mean that the consequence is removed. Now listen, when one becomes a Christian, his or her whole lifestyle changes. This is often how a Christian avoids so much pain and suffering. One turns from alcoholism to soberness, from perversion and pornography to clean living. Or, they never even take that kind of living up. And by clean living, they add years to their life. This is called prevention, just like a vaccination. I think sometimes that's why we forget about the crippling polio. And thank God for the Salk vaccine. Thank God for the smallpox vaccine. Thank God for the seatbelt that kept us from going through the windshield during a crash. Christianity is itself preventative. The angel had said to Joseph concerning the Christ child, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, we usually think of it as deliverance after the fact. But it can also be keeping them from this deliverance can also be the deliverance of prevention, keeping them from a life that's spent in sin. I think this is one of the most glorious attributes about Christianity, that we're free from the curse of a life that's spent in sin. We don't have to sin. We can and we cannot. It's our choice. We choose not to sin. Christianity is the preventative. In James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, the Lord's brother writes, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That multitudes of sins will be covered, sometimes through prevention. Because the sinner turned from a life of sin, 
before he or she com committed those sin. We know that prevention is better than cure. We're familiar with the old adage, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. It is surely better to prevent a war than to win a war. Better to prevent a disease than cure a disease. That's what Christianity does. It prevents a life lived largely in sin and averts much pain and suffering. We've discussed pain and suffering that is brought on by sin, usually by our own sin. Sometimes pain and suffering is not caused by anything we do at all, though. Sometimes we're completely innocent in our pain and suffering. Sometimes pain and suffering is caused by persecution. When one escapes the type of suffering brought on by sinful choices, such as alcoholism, perverted lifestyle choices and habits, he or she should probably brace themselves for another type of suffering. I often think of Peter's warning in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. But let none of you suffer, listen, suffer now, as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. If you're suffering because of murder or theft or doing evil or being a busybody in other people's matters, you need to repent and stop those behaviors. If you're suffering as a Christian, you need to be thankful and you need to glorify God that you're counted worthy to suffer for his name. God recognizes that all of his people will endure a specific kind of suffering that they would not if they were not his people. But this kind or type of suffering seems to come with the package. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes to Timothy saying, Yea, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a certainty. There's a basic antagonism between righteousness and worldliness. Now, the battle must be fought. Don't get me wrong. There's no way to escape this battle. The philosophy of the world is diametrically opposite to that of Christianity, and there is no peaceful coexistence. This is why the Lord's brother James writes again, James chapter 4 and verse 4, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Jesus said in John chapter 15 verses 18 and 19, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Here's a fact. We are at a disadvantage as Christians in this world. We don't belong here. We are pilgrims. And sometimes we act like we belong here. We act like this is home. But in reality, we don't. We're strangers, sojourners, pilgrims, passing through enemy-occupied territory. Friction is bound to come problems are certain to arise. And this is where the suffering comes from. One of the great problems in the lives of so many is that they're trying to live in both the world, in both worlds at the same time. When we do that, we become frustrated because in reality we cannot. We cannot be a part of this world with its glitter and its glamour, its passing, valueless, thoughtless outlook and be a part of the world with an eternal outlook that calls for a higher life and a higher purpose. 
We should and we can enable ourselves to escape much sorrow and suffering by remember what, remembering what the Lord said. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. These two categories usually don't present too much complaint or difficulty in understanding. The Christian seems to know second nature that he or she is going to endure some persecution. And usually, the Christian does so willingly, charitably. But often when we bring pain on ourselves, we slap ourselves on the forehead, call ourselves stupid, and promise to never do whatever caused the pain again, if we live through it, of course. Then there's the idea of suffering related to the physical world. The world was made for man's good, but it's often misused. When the laws of nature are broken, the penalty must be paid. This is so even if they're broken unintentionally or by matters beyond our control. It is that questions are asked. Many minds, in many minds, it appears that to be an idea that our being good changes the law of nature. This simply is not so. The best Christian in the world is subject to the same laws of nature that the vilest sinner is subject to. One can be converted to Christ and totally change his lifestyle, but that individual still lives in a flesh and blood body. He still lives in a world where fire burns and water drowns. For the sake of his body, he must eat, exercise, rest. He is still vulnerable to danger, disease, and sickness, just like he was before his conversion. Anyone who says differently is a fool spouting false doctrine. Fact number two. Conversion is designed to change the character, not the body. The body is only changed at the resurrection, not at the conversion. The smoker will still develop emphysema and or lung cancer. The overeater will become obese and develop heart disease, diabetes, and other things will, will go wrong. Though those things are not the only causes of those diseases, there are known causes in many cases. The purpose, person who habitually texts and drives will finally someday have a wreck and kill himself or somebody else. But the body, our physical body, will only be affected in the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42 through 44, the Apostle Paul pens this, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in honor, it is in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Until then, the death and the resurrection from the dead, we will be subject to the laws of nature. Even though that body remains in conversion, here there are changes which take place. But the conversion changes affect the spirit. Therefore, any effect is indirect, such as one deciding that he will take better care of his body, which houses his spirit, or that he will refrain from letting his body's lusts and passions determine his actions, thus avoiding sins which otherwise would cause suffering. In either case, there's a good, indirect blessing from being a Christian. But this does not always eliminate physical suffering. Stop for a moment and analyze your questions. 
Do they center around physical matters in areas over which one really has no control? If God eliminated such suffering, he would have to remove one from the world completely. Or God would have to build a wall around that person so that he would be immune to the laws of nature. Fire wouldn't burn, but then it wouldn't heat either. Water wouldn't drown, but it wouldn't quench one's thirst either. Or God would have to perform a miracle so often that the natural law would cease to be law. It would be a joke. There has to be a higher motive for being good than the protective benefits that one can obtain from being good. That would be cheap, not noble, low, not high. We see finally that God gets blamed for a lot of evil. When it comes to suffering because of our physical world, God gets a bad rap. He's blamed for a lot of things he simply did not do. It seems that every time something goes wrong, we want to dismiss our responsibility by saying, it's the will of God. Government, industry, business, media, all joins in this effort. If a destructive hurricane or tornado comes, it's called an act of God. Our courts take this into consideration to determine their, determining their concept of justice and who is at fault. Our insurance policies contain the, phrase, contain the phrase so the company won't be liable in case of an act of God. A hurricane, a tornado, an earthquake, a flood, a habab, or other natural disaster. When natural disaster results from natural law, too often it's blamed on God. When an infant dies from some terrible disease, well-intentioned friends try to comfort the parents by saying, it's the will of God. Or, God took your baby. This leaves the idea that God is spreading doom. That if anything goes wrong, just blame Him. It leaves the impression that God is a friend rather than a friend. Little wonder, many do not love Him. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16, John writes, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in Him. The Word of God teaches us that God is a God of love. Again, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. We must understand that everything that happens is not an act of God, not even according to the will of God. God's partnership with man prevents God's will from being done sometime. It's true that God made the world and set the order laws, set in order the laws of nature, but he does not decree the misuse of these mighty powers. To blame him would be like blaming Henry Ford for all the automobile accidents today, or the Wright brothers for plane crashes. When an innocent baby is playing in his own home and sticks a piece of metal into an electric socket and is electrocuted, was God responsible? Maybe Thomas Edison was responsible. No, neither. The laws of nature. God gave the laws of nature by which we can produce electricity. That does not make God or Mr. Edison responsible for the tragic misuse of those laws. The only real alter alternative is to do without electricity or to provide other safeguards to prevent such horrific tragedies from happening. Another baby is sound asleep in his crib when the house catches fire and cannot be reached because of the fire. He's burned alive in his crib. Do we really want to blame God for that? Would we be willing to do without fire to save that baby's life? 
Someone, a bright person, asks, Why doesn't God intervene? He has the power, doesn't he? Yes, he has the power. But if he intervened in every case, what kind of natural law would there be? If he intervened in some cases and not others, what kind of God would he be to show favoritism? We know that God doesn't play favorites. Sure, sometimes he intervenes, and we likely don't know how often that he does. Let us remember that Christians are in the world, not of the world. As long as we are here, we are subject to the same natural law that everybody else is. The same high blood pressure that will cause a pounding headache in a sinner will do it in a Christian. Christians grow old, just the same as sinners, and experience arthritis and other place, ways their body breaks down. H. Leo Bowles was a guest lecturer at a large Bible school many years ago, sat in on a Bible class while there. A lively discussion developed, and he was there while he was there about the doctrine of predestination. But Mr. Bowles did not take a side, for he wanted the young minds to explore the thoughts that they were being taught. Toward the end of the class, he stood to his feet and said, Young men, God has the power to not know. And then he sat back down. A simple but profound statement that we need to consider that we can learn much from. God has all power. This is true. No one can limit him. He has all power, which means he can limit himself. This is important in our discussion about human suffering. God can God does limit himself. When God built the universe and made the laws of nature to operate it, he limited himself. He abides by those laws too. An understanding of this answers the childish question such as, can God build a mountain so high he cannot climb it? God has placed even himself under these limitations so that he has a world that's made from man. God limits himself in the moral realm as well as in nature. The Bible declares certain limitations upon God. These limitations, too, are self-imposed. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, Paul writes that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, impossible, God cannot lie. James chapter 1, verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he, prove him, nor does he himself tempt anyone. These things are inconsistent with his nature and character. May I remind you that only an all-powerful God can limit himself in such a way. We see, too, that God limits himself in dealing with men. This is most likely the most well-known and most debated area in which God has limited himself. God has imposed limitations on himself regarding man's free will. He has greatly limited himself. Perhaps you will recall the old saying that goes like this, man proposes but God disposes. This is true to a certain degree. How often we make plans only to have them thwarted by things beyond our control. The scripture even teaches us not to plan things without planning if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. Maybe we could switch that old proverb and say around and say, God proposes, but man disposes. After all, God has left many of the decisions in the hand of mankind. Could it be that God sometimes says, if man wills, if man wills, I will save him. 
and give him a home in heaven. I mean, it does often come down to a man having to decide and vote. This isn't a lack of power on God's part, but him submitting himself to his own limitations. Let me demonstrate. God wills that man be led by his word, but man often rejects his word and rebels against God. God wills that the, place be a ch the church be a place of unity and purity, but man rebels and brings in division, innovation, and sin. God wills that only truth be preached, but man sometimes preaches another gospel, see Galatians 1. God wills that love prevails, but man replaces love with hatred. God's will is not always done because man has refused to do it, and God has given that man that freedom of choice. Do you ever wonder why? I do. Why God would give man such freedom to sin, such freedom that he could rebel against his maker. Without, without such freedom, we would be just a robot or an animal. The ability to exercise freedom of will is what separates man from all other creatures of God. The birds still sing just like they did in the garden. Animals do not have the power to reason and decide. This is part of the image of God that only humanity has. God has made man for himself. Man can make puppets, but only God can make people. When man can choose to honor God or not honor God, and makes the right choice. This way, he honors God. We see, too, that God, lastly, has limited himself in regard to suffering. This answers the question, if God is all-powerful, why do good people suffer? If God does not relieve our distress, why? Is it not because he doesn't love us? If that's so, then he should not be worshipped. Or if he does not know, or if he's unable to do it, he should not be worshipped. Keep in mind that he has made a man, not a machine. He has given some of that power to mankind. He limits himself so that he can give man the characteristics of manhood. Keep in mind the suffering is the consequence of sin. Not necessarily personal sin, but sin being in the world. If God eliminated suffering, he would be eliminating the consequences of sin rather than allowing it to take its course. He would have to perform a miracle every time one sins. If God removed the consequences of sin, then man could sin, rebel against God forever, and never suffer. Sin would no longer be punishable. If consequences were eliminated here, they would have to be eliminated in eternity also. This would take the teeth out of the law. This would make the law a laughingstock. It'd be like a society with laws on the books but no punishment attached. The jails would be opened, the prisoners freed, and not one sentence carried out. That would be total anarchy. This is inconsistent with God's nature, God's nature, and no person I know wants such a thing. Here's the final question. Is God love? Yes. Absolutely, does he care? Yes, infinitely, is he good? Yes, he wants the very best for us. He has provided the very best for us. He has made rich provisions for us. He, is he powerful? 
no doubt, so powerful that he can even limit himself. Remember what Brother Bowles said, he has the power to not know. This is what enables him to create a creature that can choose to serve him willingly, a creature that can willfully and intentionally honor and glorify him without being a machine, without being an animal. God is aware of our problems. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our strengths. And though he knows our problems, he gives us grace and strength to bear them. He does not take our suffering away. The hurt doesn't stop hurting, but the help doesn't stop helping either. And the hope never is removed. The hope of a home in heaven. May God bless you richly.